the Research and Practice for Adults podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with adults and families. Welcome to the Research and Practice podcast. Over this series, we're focusing on risk, rights and the role of the state. I'm delighted to welcome Nick Axford here today, uh, and you're going to be focusing particularly around early intervention uh, in the context of risk and rights and the role of the state. Nick, do you want to start by introducing yourself, please? Sure, yeah. Hi, um, so uh, I'm an associate professor down at Plymouth University and uh, a senior associate at the Dartington Service Design Lab and uh, worked at Dartington for about 20 years, uh, focusing in particular on prevention and early intervention. So, as I've said before, we're doing a series of interviews with various people uh, on a range of topics, all under this overarching theme of risk, rights and the role of the state. Now, you've been working in and around early intervention for many years. How have you seen the discussions and understanding change over that time? Okay. Well, I started working at Dartington about 20 years ago, and I think it's fair to say at that time the term early intervention wasn't in, in common use, so we talked a lot about uh, family support in particular. There was a lot of discussion and debate at the time about the needs of children, and this was particularly in the light of the 1989 Children Act and focusing on um, identifying and then serving children in need. I think it was in that context that we started to think particularly about um, risk, but we thought about it in terms of risk and protective factors. Um, So risk factors uh, being factors uh, in children's lives that make it more likely that um, certain harmful outcomes might happen down the line. And protective factors, of course, being factors that in the context of um, risk might protect the child against the risks that they're facing. And I think, I think thinking about it in terms of need is, is quite a helpful lens um, to think about it because it shows that risk is not, um, is not deterministic, it's probabilistic. And if you think about, if you look at uh, children in the round in terms of their living situation, their family situation, their school and so on, and you look at what the risk and protective factors are, it helps you to have a, a good holistic sense of what their needs might be. There was also a lot of discussion then around the um, the rights of children and the rights of, of parents um, and clearly that's still a very live discussion. I think one of the things that we are increasingly looking at in, in the context of early intervention is thinking about how to involve families and children in, in the design of, of interventions for them. I'd like to just pick up, if I may, on a point that you made there about uh, risks not being deterministic um, but rather working with probabilities. That seems to me a really important point to interrogate. I think um, there seems to be, I would observe, a tendency, uh, not just in early intervention, I'm thinking also of things like child sexual exploitation, a real desire to find neat mechanisms, neat solutions, risk assessment toolkits, indicators, um, which are then being treated as if they are predictive, not indicative. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? What what you meant there about determinism rather than... Yeah, well, I think we know at the aggregate level that certain factors are known to be um, strongly associated with um, with um, other outcomes, and, and particularly um, as children grow up. So things that children experience in childhood, it could be family violence, it might be living in a poor neighbourhood, um, it might be having particular um, character traits... We know that these are that children with with some of these risks are more likely to develop certain problems later in life. That's not to say that they always will, and that's very important. Um, it's, as, as you say, it's probabilistic, 
and it depends on what else is going on in their life. And so I think when applying these ideas at a, an individual child level, it's very important to think in the round, as I say, to look at not just the risk factors in their lives, but also some of the protective factors as well, because we know that if certain things are present in children's lives, that even in the context of risk, their development can still be um, reasonably good, even, even very positive. Um, so when it comes to targeting early intervention, I think we need to think with that mindset and a, a checklists are very crude obviously it needs to be to my mind it needs to be um, uh, more careful more holistic than that now of course not all early intervention is about reducing risk or at least not in the sense of risk of serious harm um, and that that's important to note because sometimes we can hear early intervention being talked about as if it only exists as a gatekeeper or step-down function for social care, in particular mm -hmm. child protection, where early intervention is about reducing that risk of serious harm, where it is um, closely connected to uh, social work, social care functions, mm. um, what kind of evidence do we have that suggests it can be effective in reducing those risks? Well, I think there's uh, a lot of evidence around that. Um, and of course, a lot of that evidence comes in the form of systematic reviews, meta-analyses. So there's kind of the, the question of the type of evidence. So from um, these kind of studies which uh, look at a range of um, primary studies, so kind of particularly randomised control trials, but also um, other uh, evaluation designs, and they look at the evidence from across these studies and try and synthesise them, um, sometimes in a narrative form, sometimes in a statistical form, but that gives us a good sense of what is and isn't effective, um, and, 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 the, and also to some extent the factors that are associated with or predictive of things that are more effective. And there are lots of systematic reviews and, and so on in, in various areas that are, are relevant to um, this subject. So obviously um, for child abuse and neglect, um, sexual, ex sexual abuse and domestic violence, um, potentially things like gang violence as well. And, uh, and bullying, of course, as well. So we have, we have a lot of evidence around those things. I think it's fair to say that often uh, these systematic reviews conclude that effects are small to modest, so we have to accept that. And often they are short-term and they're not, they're not sustained, so that's an issue. Um, quite a lot of the research comes, probably the, the majority of the research comes from outside of the UK, and in particular from North America, so we need to be aware of that. Um, there are some challenges therefore around replication both of interventions and also of their effects. That said, I think there is um, a lot of evidence we should feel quite positive about that there are tangible benefits of these kinds of interventions and there are some things that are transportable, we know that. So, so they might have been tested in different uh, environments originally but when they're tried elsewhere they, they, they show that they're effective, um, so they're, they're transportability. I think it's fair to say that we tend to know a lot a lot of the research particularly around child abuse and neglect the outcome measures are tend to be proxies for child abuse and neglect so uh, the evidence might be more for um, reducing harsh parenting let's say than confirmed instances of of child abuse and neglect and that's partly to do with issues of measurement um, which which can be difficult and it's so sometimes and sometimes it's because studies just haven't haven't measured these things is it is it heretical of me to suggest that some of the stuff we don't need in RCT to back it up, or quasi-experimental design, um, and we should be doing it because it's the right thing to do in some cases, and that, that might be true of, of various forms of early intervention. Is that, is that a deeply anti-intellectual way to go about this? 
No, I think it's a really fair point. I think there is a lot of stuff that, when you on the face of it, you look at it and you think. Um, well, firstly, it's important to do something about this. We don't need we don't need evidence to tell us. I, I don't think that doing something about child abuse and neglect or domestic violence is not. We don't we don't just we don't act on that just because it um, causes harm to children down the line. We do it because it violates their rights and all that kind of stuff as well. So that's the first thing I'd say. Second thing I'd say is I think we have to be conscious. I think that while we may while while we may have good intentions and we might think some things are good, it's good to test those things but I think we I think we need a degree of humility here that there are we know from other areas youth justice is a good example that things that people thought were good ideas weren't good ideas scared straight is the classic example of uh, a program that um, took young kids who were on the verge of crime getting into antisocial behavior took them to prison the idea was it would scare them away from a from a path of crime and the, the multiple trials have now shown that far from doing that it actually makes them more likely to get involved in, in crime and there are various theories about why that is one being that they um, they're hanging out with uh, other kids who are like them and they kind of egg each other on and they see that prison is maybe isn't as bad as they thought and so on and so forth so um, and there are other examples as well but that's the best known one there are studies that show that uh, various interventions are effective in, in, in this area but that they are more effective if um, if those interventions have certain characteristics. So for example, um, if they are of a certain length or if they are delivered by certain um, people rather than other people or if they contain, contain certain content, maybe more on um, skills rather than just giving information. So research helps us with that, I think. It helps us to not just to know that certain types of intervention are effective, but knowing how to make sure that they are, they are more effective um, and to, to, to try and focus out, make sure that we invest more of our time and money on those things that are, are more effective. What you're describing there are common threads or characteristics or um, design features mm -hmm. which increase the probability that something will be effective for mm -hmm. more people more mm -hmm. often. Mm -hmm which is a much less sexy, snappy expression than what works. But yes. it's absolutely right that you yeah. are yeah. Um, setting that out in a more nuanced way, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think, and people say, and I completely buy that. And I think, I mean, I think that the whole what works thing is it's a, it's a convenient shorthand. It's no more than that. And I think most people, and I include myself who, who work in that area, we are, we understand that it is about things working in, who does it work for, in what setting, in what context, and all that kind of stuff. It's a... It's a shorthand. You've talked a little bit there about how we can access uh, evidence around, uh, we hope, more effective early intervention. Um, what would you describe as the key characteristics, common threads, common factors? What type of thing tends to be important? I think it varies enormously depending on the... At one level it, it depends a lot on the area that we're looking at, um, so whether that's preventing child maltreatment, preventing youth crime, preventing bullying and so on. But I think there are some things that run across all of those. So firstly, I think the more effective interventions tend to be very clear about what they're doing and why it, why it's likely to be effective. So they tend to have a clear theory of change or logic model or whatever. And their assumptions about why, why uh, intervening in a particular way will be effective. So that's the first thing. And secondly, I think they, um, they're very clear about their, who, who they're trying to reach and they are deliberate about reaching those families and children. So they don't just assume that children and families will come to the door. Um, they know who they want to find and, they, and to some extent there's some outreach they're trying to find them as well. 
Um, I think another thing is that they tend to be um, they tend to be implemented well. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are um, implemented exactly as it says in the in the intervention design. There's some degree of adaptation involved, but um, if they're implemented by people who are properly trained and supported and so on, then then they will be more effective. I think in some areas, I mean, a good example would be uh, child mental health. We're learning that you've got, and it's, again, you might say this is self-evident and common sense, but we're learning that you've got, it probably makes sense to intervene in several settings. So, for example, there are school-based interventions around um, children's uh, mental health, and for that matter, other aspects of their health and well-being. It might be obesity and so on. And there might be school lessons about some of these subjects. The evidence suggests that those interventions have limited effectiveness unless they are complemented by other things. So, for example, you don't just teach kids lessons about things, but you have a whole school environment that is um, reinforcing those messages, and you're engaging parents and potentially the wider community. Uh, so, kind of more of a, um, a multi-component or even systematic, systemic um, approach to addressing some of those issues. A couple of other things I'll just say briefly. One is, um, I think a lot of the a lot of early intervention programs are underpinned by quite similar um, theories and we, we've tended to become a little bit obsessed in the field with, with, with what I think of as the wrappers so we're kind of there, there's a zillion parenting programs for example and we tend to obsess a little bit about exactly which one is the most effective and it's a little bit like obsessing is you know is, is Twix better than Mars better than whatever else and what I think it would be helpful if we think more about what are the common underlying, um, what's the common underlying logic model. So whether that's driven by um, social learning theory or attachment theory, or um, in the case of youth crime, um, the social development model, which puts a big emphasis on children having opportunities um, to to learn skills, develop skills, and so on. Those things that seems to me are more are more important. Um. I couldn't agree more. When you said obsessed with rappers, I thought you might be about to break out into some rap, but I see now you meant sort of the packaging. I could do some rapping if you like. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have you rapping before the end of the podcast. Um, about the, the packaging almost being a bit distracting, um, and we might be better to, to focus on those kind of core elements um, and the underpinning theoretical framework for it. That then makes, that prompts another question for me around what we would sometimes call the balance between fidelity and context. And you touched on this earlier on mm. adaptation. Mm. Um, why are we so utterly preoccupied with manualistic fidelity? And are we maturing from that? You can hear the hope in my question, perhaps. <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I guess in the first instance, if a lot of these interventions were developed not necessarily to as a product that would be widely disseminated a lot of them were developed to test theories and um, developed often by in, in universities in kind of almost um, laboratory-like conditions I, I use that term broadly and therefore in order to test whether a, a certain theory um, works it was necessary to develop manuals to say so that the people delivering the intervention delivered it as intended um, so that they could test whether intervening in a particular way um, worked or was effective in, in improving outcomes. I think what's happened then is uh, some of those programmes have then gone on to become commercial products or sometimes sometimes freely disseminated but sometimes commercial products and I guess I think of that for a couple of ways. One is it's worth noting that it often in these manuals the intervention developers acknowledge the importance of adaptation so they don't 
the perception is that they are very, very rigid and they say you absolutely must do this like it says on the tin and there's absolutely no room for manoeuvre. In my experience, that's not entirely true. There are a lot of these programmes, interventions. The manual says this, this is broadly the structure, this is the underlying theory, these are the, the lessons or sessions or whatever, um, but you know, you're dealing with people and you've got to um, you've got to relate it to them. So a good example would be something like the Paths programme, which is a social emotional programme that goes into schools. The developer, Mark Greenberg, is very clear that if you've if you've got a lesson scheduled for that day and just before the lesson lesson a big fight breaks out at playtime, for example, don't ignore it. Weave that into the lesson, make the lesson relevant to that situation. So that's just a simple example. I think the other thing I'd say about manuals as well is that they are where I think they potentially have strength is in helping probably I think they can help all practitioners but arguably some of the practitioners who are perhaps not as strong as others uh, and I mean there's quite a lot there's some evidence of, of, of practitioners practitioners saying we found the manuals really helpful it helped us to sharpen and hone our skills and so on um, but I do think that I don't have evidence of this but I suspect that they are they could be more helpful for practitioners who are who are weaker. So I think we need to bear that in mind. In terms of are we maturing from that, I think I think probably to some degree, I think we're certainly becoming aware that there are these common underlying logic models or theories of change. The question is then what to do about that. So for example, we could say, well, let's identify what are some of the common features of these interventions. And then we could um, train practitioners in using those. I think that's probably a healthy thing and a good idea. I, I worry slightly that what will then happen is people will say, well, it'd be really useful if we package these together in some way and we'll kind of come full circle and we'll be back at manuals. So, <laughs> but I think but I, I, the other, I would say that I think it's slightly crazy we have so many programmes. I don't personally care, for example, with Incredible Incredible Years. is a very well-known parenting programme. It's one of the programmes that has good evidence of transportability. It seems to be effective in different contexts. And I don't really care terribly whether people do Incredible Years what I do care about is do they, are people who are delivering parenting programmes in children's centres or schools or community centres or whatever, are they doing what the evidence suggests is, is highly effective and what we have learnt from Incredible Years? And it could be that Incredible Years is the best means of delivering those 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 things, but there might be other things as well. And um, one of my interests is thinking about looking at how we, how we can make practice that is already scaled and is already widely prevalent, how can we make that more evidence-based? So there are there are people doing work on this, so looking at, a good example would be, let's say, mentoring programmes for, for people, in, for young people who are getting involved in antisocial behaviour. There are lots of mentoring programmes around. What we could do is say, well, instead of introducing a new mentoring programme into a local authority, why don't we look at the ones that exist and in some way kind of rate them or measure them against what we know to be the effective features of, of good mentoring programs and then see if we can improve existing practice um, and you know maybe some of them are too short or maybe they don't spend enough time matching the young person with with the mentor etc etc and we can in, improve in, you know improve things in situ but certainly there is a push towards um, personalising um, some of these interventions. So for example, I'm, I'm involved in some work at the moment with Family Nurse Partnership, which as you know, had a, um, it's a home visiting programme for um, for young mothers, um, teenage mothers, often from very disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, big trial in, the, in, in, in England showing, um, showing no effect on the primary outcomes and small 
effects on a handful of, of secondary outcomes. So I think it obviously was very disappointing for everyone involved at the time. There's, there was a little debate around the outcome measures, and, and that was um, captured in, in some journal articles. There was a bit of to and fro between the developers and some other experts in the field questioning whether the outcome measures were the right ones. And I think that was probably a valid debate, but on, on outcomes where it was expected that FNP would have an impact, uh, it didn't. And we need to um, be straight about that and not try and cover that up. So the work that's happened since um, has been sort of has had kind of two elements really. One is adapting uh, the program in terms of some clinical content. So, for example, adapting content around um, smoking cessation, breastfeeding, domestic violence, and so on, and trying to um, take on board the best, most recent evidence around those things, but also working with nurses and, um, and and service users to try and co-design um, adaptations to the to the intervention and then the second type of adaptation is more system-wide and that's around personalizing uh, FNP so there was already some flexibility for nurses in terms of what they had to deliver over the two two and a half years but there's there's even more flexibility now in in the t in the sites in which we're testing it so they have freedom to adjust the content of, of sessions depending on the, the needs of the client. So um, if it says in, in the manual uh, you're in visit 20 and these are the things to cover but that's completely irrelevant to the, to the person you're working with then don't do it and do something else. And that's interesting. You've, you've touched on this already, the need for really good workforce development, support, yeah. ongoing skills development and training and supervision I would argue uh, as being a, a key part of effective implementation. Mm. The more we move towards contextual adaptation rather than sort of slavish fidelity, mm. my language not yours, mm. um, it seems to me the greater the need for that workforce development and support. Mm. Not so much just training you in how to deliver the programme, but critical thinking skills. Because the more uh, adaptive the intervention, mm. the more um, adaptive we need our, our colleagues yeah. to be. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I, I, I completely agree. And. And, and having and having tools to support that as well. So, for example, in the context of, of FNP, we've introduced a new tool to help nurses and and um, uh, the mothers to sit down and look at the needs in a more holistic way, like like we were talking about earlier, and thinking about well, uh, what are in different areas of their lives, where are their particular needs, and in some ways trying to orientate the program uh, so that the content addresses those needs. And also the other area of um, personalisation is, is adjusting the intensity of it. There is an argument to be made that some of, or indeed most of, uh, the work we do in the intervention locates the needs, risks, harms, problem and strengths in the parent. And when I say parent, we basically mean mothers, let's be honest about that, uh, and or with the child. So we'll do behaviour work with the child, we'll do parenting programmes with mum. How do we contextualise those? How mm. And what role can early intervention play in recognising and responding to those much mm. bigger systemic pressures that children and families face? Yeah. Well I think it's a fair comment. I think I, uh, a couple of years ago I did a, a mapping exercise looking at a range of evidence-based programmes, uh, probably 100 plus, and mapped them in terms of the risk and protective factors they were targeting and then the different domains. And it, it's certainly true to say that the vast majority are focusing on individual level factors, family level factors, school to some extent, which of course is slightly wider context, but very, very little looking at um, 
the community or the economic um, context. So I think that's fair to say. I guess in in its defence, I'd say that's probably true of most frontline services generally anyway. So with some exceptions, there are most social work is concerned with those kind of factors. Most um, education is concerned with those kind of factors um, because that's what they can do something about it take to, to address things like poverty um, and housing difficulties to some to a large degree not entirely but to a large degree requires policy level responses clearly so I think we have to from my perspective we have to accept that I would also say there are some efforts um, to address some of these wider contextual um, factors but there need to be more so to give a couple of examples there's a program called Families and Schools Together, FAST program, yeah. which a lot of that's around kind of building social capital between um, between families. Um, I, I think that's an interesting idea. In, in other areas like drug abuse and substance misuse prevention, there's a, a lot of work around environmental um, prevention. So um, trying to change the, uh, the way in which pubs are designed uh, or regulating drugs or alcohol or um, the price of these things for example so that's taking a wider perspective and maybe some of those ideas could be applied uh, in other areas besides um, drug and alcohol misuse and so on. I think another way of thinking about it is that we know from some studies or maybe many <coughs> studies in, in early intervention that the children of families who benefit most are those who often not always often those who have the highest level of difficulty so something to bear in mind um, and we need to do more analysis of um, uh, the effectiveness of, of programmes in terms of socioeconomic status. So, for example, you know, what, I, what I mean by that is, do children who come from poorer backgrounds benefit more than those who come from slightly less poor backgrounds? And I suspect the evidence will be very mixed. I suspect in some cases that will be the case and others not. But if it is the case, it does suggest that these kind of interventions can be a vehicle for mobility and for greater um, equality. Um, and that raises a really interesting conundrum if I put myself in the shoes of a local authority commissioner, for yeah. example. So if, if I was um, made aware of evidence that suggested children living in poorer families or, or uh, those of particular socioeconomic disadvantage were likely to benefit more from early intervention programmes and interventions, I might then be encouraged to target very, very specifically. Mm. And of course, your point earlier about what tends to enable things to work best is good targeting. Mm. And then I'm into quite a tricky place because I have almost immediately, I would mm. argue, created a highly stigmatising approach. Yeah. How do we help people to navigate that complexity? And it's okay if you need to come back for a second interview to muse on that <laughs> one. I guess a couple of things. Uh, first thing I'd say is we shouldn't forget a lot of early interventions were even those that are a lot of early intervention programs even those that are not highly targeted they're not targeting individuals but they might be targeting broad groups are tested and and found to be effective in in very disadvantaged communities with with people who are um, from you know disadvantaged in many ways um, so they have demonstrated effectiveness in in such settings so I think that's something that we shouldn't lose sight of um, and that families who've um, received these, these interventions, a family nurse partnership is a good example where a lot of the mothers um, who, who receive, who've received um, a family nurse partnership speak very positively of it. 
including fathers, um, who some of whom you know, FNP has tried and, and is trying more to, to do something with fathers. They speak quite positively of it. I think the second thing to say is that we've probably been less good than we should have been at reaching the families who often need these types of intervention most. So I think there's sometimes this concern about stigmatisation, about targeting the, the poorest, the underclass and, and so on. Part of me wants to say, if only, in the sense that um, what is what to my mind happens more more commonly is we reach we reach people who, who need the intervention less. And for me a good example of this was some work we did in Birmingham uh, with the Incredible Years Parenting Programme where we it was went into children's centres to and it was for children with a certain level of behavioural difficulty and it's a parenting programme. And when we when we started off started off the children's centre said well we've got lots of children like that um, we could, no, no problem um, when the when the study started these it proved almost impossible to find these families because they weren't and what we realised was the children who um, the f families at the children's centres thought were really difficult actually weren't that difficult they're, they're, the kids behaviour wasn't that bad we knew because we had evidence from a from a, um, a city wide survey. That the children with this level of difficulty did exist, um, but they just weren't knocking on th their families weren't coming to the children's centres. So, um, so some concerted outreach was, was done to try and reach these families. And for me, that was a very um, useful lesson because the, the the temptation was to say, let's just work with the families we've got here. Okay, they're not quite the right families, but let's just work with them anyway. Um, and, and the director of children's services at the time there was very strong and said, "No, we know these families exist. We're going to find them, and and clearly they will. And you know, the argument would be that they would benefit the most. So, um, so I think we we need to be better at outreach. And the last thing I'll say here as well is I think we do need to balance the whole issue of universal and, and targeted and and um, in the sense that the best way to engage um, some um, some of the more disadvantaged." children is of course to have a universal approach mm. so I so um, but at the same time we have to recognize some of these interventions are very expensive and um, uh, and some children will frankly be wasting their time and their parents time which arguably is a bit of a rights issue as well if we if we spend lots of time doing stuff with them that they frankly don't need and are unlikely to benefit from are we potentially creating a risk which says we'll, we'll suck everyone into the, you know, widen the net far enough, scrutinise every family long enough and you will find mm. a reason to bring them in. And if you do agree, what mm. kinds of things could we do to avoid that? I think we need an approach that works across the spectrum so um, that we do have universal um, universal services, things that are going on, let's say in schools that are around, I think there should be interventions in schools that are helping um, uh, parents hopefully to be to be better parents, helping um, children to develop their social and emotional learning and so on. Um, and but then we need things that are more targeted as well. So we think it has to be uh, progressive in in that sense. I think my concern is um, that we already know that there are children, arguably children, get receiving help who have less needs or less serious needs than some children who are not getting help. And I think I'm, so that concerns me that um, 
yes, there's a danger of sucking in the wrong families. There's also a danger of not sucking in the right ones. And uh, which goes back to the previous point about making sure that we reach families who really need help. Sometimes they'd be referred to as, uh, as so-called hard to reach. I think more in the sense of services are often just hard to access. I think in terms of unintended consequences, the other thing I'd say as well is that there is a growing awareness in the field of early intervention. This comes back to the earlier point about um, good intentions, that the interventions or services we design, they have the potential to do harm as well as, as, well as to do good. And uh, Chris Burnell, who's a professor in, at um, uh, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, some colleagues a couple of years ago wrote a really interesting article called uh, Dark Logic. And the, the idea of the article was we, when, we, when we develop interventions, we often, we often develop, develop a logic model, so like a little summary of why we think the intervention uh, will be effective, the mechanisms through which it will work. And he says, that's fine, that's good, but we, must, we should also think about the mechanisms through which it might cause harm and then reflect on, as we're designing an intervention, that might cause us to, to stop, it might cause us not to do something. Um, it might cause us to say, well, we don't know if that's going to happen or not, so we're going to, we're going to test for that and see if that materialises. That seems to me a very sensible thing to do. I think that's really important. We don't, in, in health, uh, there is language that's iatrogenic. Yes, so yes. Where exactly. our treatment might make you more poorly yeah, uh, yeah. or worse. Yeah. We don't have an equivalent word in social work, social care, early health, no. family support. No. Um, perhaps we need one. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, that's fair. I think we, need, we do need to be aware of that. And it comes back to the earlier point I was making really about um, evaluation and, and that some things um, might seem good and helpful, but they're not necessarily... Some early intervention programmes have unintended or unanticipated positive effects that we don't necessarily pick up on. So a good example would be, let's say something like um, uh, family nurse partnership again. Are we picking up the effect that it has on, say, the, the, um, the young women's self-esteem, on their, their general happiness with life, that they've got someone going in on a regular basis, um, spending time with them, being really supportive and so on. We tend to, we obsess about public health outcomes, which of course are really important, birth weight and smoking cessation and so on. But some of these other things, more relational things arguably, we're sometimes not capturing, and perhaps those are important as well. One of the concerns I can sometimes um, find myself feeling around early intervention is the sort of that location of responsibility, but also location of blame. So if I'm a mum, because um, it's too much of a stretch for me to imagine being a dad, so mm. if I'm a mum and I'm facing all sorts of difficulty with my child or children, and well-meaning professionals get me onto this course and that course and blah, 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 but in effect they are training courses to make me a better mum. Mm. But if the reasons why I'm not enacting my parenting in the way that I would really want to is because I'm structurally disadvantaged, experiencing all sorts of prejudice, oppression, mm. um, experiencing poverty and abuse, yeah. There is a danger that the I might come away with all sorts of fantastic mm. new, you know, sticker mm. charts and bedtime routines mm. and techniques like that, but I have mm. potentially had it reinforced to me mm. that I am the problem. Mm. Society can't change, mm. the structures can't change, mm. but you just need to make sure you're using the naughty step properly. Yes, absolutely, and I, I think that's, that's clearly very undesirable. And, and I, I think the thing I'd say about that is, um, I think, think sometimes people who work in early intervention and develop and evaluate these kind of programs the criticism is leveled that there is this focus on these so-called more proximal factors of fam family um, environment and, and, and parenting and so on and so forth <clears throat> it comes back to what I was saying earlier I think that's that's partly because those are things that can be 
something can be done about those things by frontline practitioners and we know from research that um, the effects of poor of poverty for example are, are mediated parenting and so on so uh, and the effects on on child outcomes child behavior are mediated through things like parenting so that the parenting is something we can do something about it's not to say we shouldn't do something about everything else as well um and certainly there is a there's a line of criticism which is that people who work in early intervention are kind of part of this big neoliberal enterprise and it's all, all about kind of investing in families because it's benefiting the economy all that kind of stuff and I think people I know and I include myself in this we we, we care passionately about kids well-being in the here and now we want to improve it and um, what we're looking for is the best means of doing that and and we we also many of us at least think think we need policy to address poverty inequality and so on and so forth but we, you know what we're doing is we're doing something about what we can do something about in the here and now. I do also wonder whether the discourse has helped. So mm. some of the very, very popular and widely mm. spread um, messages around this mm. include things like, you know, you'll get an X percent return on investment, yeah. or for every such and such spent, you'll save such and such. Mm. Um, and then some really quite inhumane language about, you know, stock and flow yeah. uh, of families. And how can we challenge that? I think there's a danger of that, for sure. And I think some people go into for that, that more more than others. I think <clears throat> I think where it's been helpful is it, it's it's to some extent been a helpful persuasive tool um, to get a um, cross-party political consensus on 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 some of these issues. Um, so I think there are a lot more persuaded than that by than others. So that could arguably be be helpful. The second thing I think to say is that there is a danger of um, those kind of things being misused. Um, the the benefits are often over a long period of time, mm -hmm. and the benefits often don't come back to the organisation that they made the initial investment. And and also some of the ben not all of the benefits come to the taxpayer. Some of the benefits are for the for potentially for the individual themselves. We need to use public money well. We do. We also, it sounds to me, hearing you talk there, we need to educate local leaders, in particular I'm thinking local political leaders, mm. to understand that, well, it's not savings, it's cost avoid, it's potential cost avoidance. Yeah. It yeah. might not happen in your lifetime, yeah. and it almost certainly won't come back to your budget. Yeah. So something there around kind of evidence literacy for... Yes, for yes. I think that runs through all of this. I think, you know, we kind of point out, I think, I think a lot of, in, in terms of thinking, helping people think about how to apply early intervention it's we just need a more sophisticated all of us need a more sophisticated nuanced understanding of these things it sometimes strikes me that we find it harder to be nuanced uh, when we're under pressure now the sector is uh, under significant pressure and I I sometimes wonder whether that's feeding the sort of the silver bullets mm -hmm. rhetoric how do we create the conditions for nuanced sophisticated um, values-driven mm. debate mm. in this territory. Mm. A few things to say. I mean, I think, um, I think firstly, we arguably need in 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 the sector and across the sector. I mean, social care, education, health, and so on. Um, as you say earlier, greater sort of research or lit evidence literacy. I think that's important um, to understand both the strengths and limitations of different methods of um, evaluating services, designing services, and so on. I think that would. I think that would help a lot and the whole evidence-based enterprise to me is the danger of people assuming it's very um, it's very deterministic the evidence says this therefore we must do that and and it's it's everyone knows when well, everyone 
we know that that's much more nuanced than that and you've got to take into account context and um, different types of knowledge and so on and so forth. So I think um, a greater awareness of that would help. I think at a local level we I think we need a stronger what I think of as an intelligence function in local authorities and by that I mean a function that can serve several um, purposes. So for example I think we generally need a better sense than we do of the needs of children and families in a given um, jurisdiction. We actually don't tend to know very much about the needs of families um, at a kind of aggregate level and that's not very helpful because it means we, it's hard to then prioritise um, and, and hard to know where to focus. So we need a better sense of that. I think we need to um, help people to, this comes back to literacy, um, evidence literacy I guess, make sense of things like databases of, of evidence-based programmes, how to use those, how to apply those, if you're a commissioner, how to make sense of those. I think we probably need at a local level to be better at designing and developing our own interventions, so we shouldn't just be looking to import things from um, other countries or other parts of the UK, but let's develop some things on the ground and, and test those um, in situ. And I think as well we need to get systems or system leaders talking together so we develop a more rounded and holistic um, perspective in, in a given area. One thing I'd be really interested in your view on is the role of neuroscience in intervention. I mean, it's, it's a very emerging field, of course, and we forget that MRI uh, imagery is actually quite a, a recent mm -hmm. uh, development for us. There's a, it's, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, it seems to me that an increasing number of early intervention programmes and interventions um, purport to be rooted in neuroscience, and, and often that's its emerging nature is not always well mm. uh, recognised or advertised. Yeah. And I think I might be right in saying, but do challenge me, mm. that not all of that neuroscience is from human brains, mm -hmm. uh, which could lend itself to some quite um, interesting dilemmas, I think. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. I think again about the people, if I was a struggling parent and I was offered a programme to make me be better at you know, whatever issues mm. I'm having, mm. um, I would want to know it hadn't been tested on rats yeah. <laughs> only. Uh, why are we so seduced by neuroscience in this building? And are there any risks associated with it? That was a very leading question. Do feel free to reframe it. Sure. Well, it's interesting. I, a couple of years ago, when I was working on this, um, the PADS programme I mentioned earlier, I, I was invited to do an interview, and um, the, the interviewer was um, desperate for me to say something sensible about how the programme changed kids' brains. And, and I said, look, I'm not a neuroscientist, and um, it probably does um, change their brains in some way, in the sense that doing other activities changes one, one's brain. Um, uh, but I'm not qualified to talk about it. Um, I know that there is um, evidence, and a lot of the programmes, when they, when they talk about the neuroscience, science, um, is they, some of it, and certainly in the case of PARS, I think it's very much about this idea that there, there's a part of your brain that is kind of very much around sort of um, fight or flight type reaction, and then there's the more thoughtful part of the brain, and these interventions are trying to help the, the more thoughtful part, more reflective part, overcome the kind of fight or flight thing. Now, I, I know very little about that. It sounds, it sounds plausible. Um, I, I can't comment more than that because I'm not a neuroscientist. I think we are seduced by it, <clears throat> and I definitely think there's been some unhelpful narrative around it, and 
uh, there are the the classic image of the kind of of, of the child's healthy child brain and neglected child brain and I think that's unhelpful I think the narrative of, of uh, damage to children's brains is unhelpful and, and also any any suggestion that children's brain that those uh, the children's brains are not plastic and that they can't change uh, in later life I, th I think that's unhelpful as well I think it's seductive probably because it's kind of coming from a more physical science and and probably because we don't know much about it as well so I think that can be seductive I think so I think I think we have to be careful about how we use it at the same time we shouldn't throw it out and, and suggest that it's going to be of no use at all and I think um, well I think just going back to the why it's seductive I think one reason it's seductive is that those kind of images have show have suggested that um, look if we, if we abuse children then look how bad it is it damages their brains I think it's really important to say we don't need um, evidence of what it, what abuse does to kids brains to know that it's a terrible thing and we've got to do something about it some of what we know about brain science suggests that there's no point just teaching parents to do um, certain things with their kids if they live in really poor housing and in really um, to use the phrase they would use toxic environments so so in other words pointing towards the more structural um, economic neighborhood based types of intervention that we talked about earlier so I think that's interesting that um, it might not always point in the directions we think it might. So some of the things that I think have come through really clearly in this conversation, this need for contextual adaptation, not just programmatic fidelity, this need to be evidence literate, lots of critical thinking, not just evidence compliant, yeah. um, which I think is a really important point, this intelligence function in local areas, so uh, creating, building capacity locally for intelligence gathering use uh, rather than being passive recipients of some central body which mm -hmm. releases the programmes which we must all then follow. This, you made an interesting point about having some broader measures of impact, not just what works, but how did it feel? Yeah. What did it do for your self-esteem? What did yeah. it do for your social connectivity? Yeah. Um, rather than just, are you, um, has your child now got better dental health? Yes. Yeah glorious notion of not just importing things from the US, uh, we, we, we can and should be developing our own interventions uh, here and not least of course because the context is so different when you don't have a welfare state. Mm. Uh, I'm talking in case you're listening to this in the future about the U US there, not Britain, in case it doesn't date very well. <laughs> uh, you know, it had huge implications for the Feminist Partnership. But last, that point about co-design. Mm. This is not language I've heard very much of in early mm. intervention. Co-designing yeah. programmes, approaches, interventions with families, which, which for mm. me, starts to embody a sense of values-driven, mm. rights-based perspectives. Mm. I do think there is a, a, a shift in focus, and, and people are talking much more about um, co-design. So, I mean, the, the work I with refer... with families receiving. The support to some extent, yes, and I think uh, to some extent, and I think I mean we've been trying to do that in in the context of family nurse partnership. It's fair to say it's been um, a challenge, I think, and and we have to reflect on why we have not been as good as we would like uh, to have been um, at um, at involving families, but some have been involved, and and uh, and others are doing that in other areas as well. So, and I think the the reason these things are important, I mean range of reasons but one is I think it will help us to understand better what's going on in people's lives we'll have a better sense of what people are more likely to engage with I mean there's no point designing great interventions if no one's going to come along so that's really really important. What do you think are the kind of key pitfalls that a local authority 
um, colleague might face or indeed someone working in the voluntary sector. I'm thinking particularly folks in commissioning roles, they have very limited resource to spend and, mm. a, and a range of uh, issues they're trying to address for children and families. Mm. What do you think of the, the key pitfalls that they need to watch out for? Mm. Well I think certainly seeing discrete early intervention programmes as, as a silver bullet, I think that's um, be nice if it was that easy and I think we recognise it's not so I think that's one I think another one would be um, not thinking that you have to invest um, in in good quality implementation and all the things that sit around that so as we talked about earlier about um, workforce understanding of, of evidence a third pitfall would be not understanding that a lot of the problems that early intervention is trying to address are very complex the systems that are trying to address those problems are also complex and so we, we need to make sure that um, people who work in these systems are talking together more and looking for more systematic responses to some problems. That's really helpful. Nick, thank you very much indeed for such a broad ranging and really, I think, nuanced discussion around early intervention. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Research and Practice for Adults podcast, and we hope you enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and share your thoughts on Twitter? Tweet us at RIPFA. Thanks for listening.